so Christian and I have already been, uh, before we called you, we've already been um, in a mutual incomprehension argument about uh, bar passage data. That's so, good. I think that's right. I think it's mostly confusing and inconclusive. So this should be a really productive discussion. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, this is, you know, when I originally thought, first of all, I just said, we got to get Derek Muller on here at some point. That was my first thought. Um, and it doesn't really matter what we talk about because I'm sure it's going to be great. And, and then you started writing about all the, the exam soft bar exam meltdown in July 2014. And and of course, we'll get to what you meaning. Think it's it. now been nearly a year since all this started happening and unfolding, right? And, and people cogitating about various causation theories and blah blah blah. Yeah, but That's like Darcy, by the way, yeah. But like <laughs> like an actual nuclear meltdown, you can't go back in there for another two or three years. So it'll be <laughs> it'll be years before we actually figure out what happened. I think. But uh, although although Derek's got some got got a good got a theory, um, which we'll get to. Uh, but I, anyway, so you've been writing about this stuff, and I thought, you know, we haven't done a show about the bar exam. And and so we should do one like our Heart of Darkness show about the U.S. news rankings. Oh, there you go. Um, yeah, absolutely. And there's no faster way to get tenure, I understand, than to blog about the bar exam. <laughs> I, I am definitely making progress. That Now, that's another show. Um, scholarship and tenure and all that. Mm-hmm. I have some thoughts about that one as well. But let, well, we can't do it all today, can we? No. <laughs> um, so, Although yeah. we have a title for that other one already, and it's Fukushima. Ah, there we go. Uh, Speaking of uh, flesh oh. peeling off your bones. Oh, no, that's um, not. No. That's, that's, that's sad. too soon. Well, yeah, it is too soon, yeah. I think. Yeah. Sorry about that, Japan. Oh, my God. <laughs> Gonna have to edit all this out. Yeah, you gotta cut that out. You just, you can never... Derek, you you do a show with Joe, you just never know what you're going to get. That's right. You know what I mean? Well, what, what makes me, I think, the most uncomfortable about this show is you record the intro after the show. So I feel like I'm in a Christopher <laughs> Nolan movie every time that there's there's some reveal that none of the rest of us know, but that you know. It's so it's so funny that you say that because because um, I thought this morning because we, we were a little early kind of getting things together, which is why we had um, we had a pre-fight. Right. About the bar exam before <laughs> the show. Uh, and I thought, you know, if, if any guest, we should Derek would really appreciate being in here for the for the first part of the show. <laughs> oh, there we go. I would because normally, you know, you don't you don't want to put a uh, you don't want to put a guest. Should we take care of that? I wonder. <laughs> well, I, I don't know. Yeah, I think it's the Derek. I'm sorry. We're going to put the show on pause for a second. That's fine. Dogs um, are great. Yeah. Uh, uh. You're you're not a cat person. You're not a cat person, are you, dear? No, I'm I'm less of a pet person, I guess. I I have four children, and I guess I can't imagine adding animals to that mix. Oh my gosh! All right, now, well, what's the I age think, range? I think you already have uh, eight six four two. Wow! And do they want do they want a dog? Uh, thankfully, not yet. Hmm. Are you going to be the dad who's like says no, and then it's going to be eventually you're going to like buckle under the pressure and then like you're going to be the one who loves the dog the most and it's going to be there's going to be like syrupy music and it'll be just like you and the dog out on a truck and the dog is getting older and you know and then you you get you know what i'm talking you know what i'm talking about you know the story Um, right this is how it's gonna unfold i'm practically in tears right now and there's not even any pictures this is terrible that's about as far from a christopher nolan movie as you can get i I don't think we're going to do a pre-show are we no I don't, we don't. We got. We have, we have no we've, feedback. We got no emails this week. N- from nothing. Listeners. Nothing. It makes me. Great. It makes me a little sad. Uh, but or, oral argument podcast at gmail dot com. Well, then let's jump into whatever your pre fight was. No. Oh, yeah. No, we don't believe. We're me. not going to go back there. No. 
<laughs> we're we were arguing about the bar passage statistic in uh, the U.S. news rankings. Oh, okay, sure, yeah. And whether, say, Irvine would be benefited in the U.S. news rankings from a uniform bar exam. And, um, and Christian's imagined answer turned in part on what U.S. news might do to change the way that it uh, creates and employs that metric. If a lot of states shifted to the uniform bar exam, would you stop comparing the grads of that school only in terms of the other students who took that same state's bar exam? Would you just shift to a national average? And I think clearly you'd switch to a national average. And and so that would advantage schools uh, where the bar takers are, as a class, maybe more able. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I have no idea whether California bar takers are more able than most other states in general. But but my, my point was that the U.S. News uh, uh, corrects for bar passage rates in part because, like everybody knows, you know, a 90 percent pass rate in, you know, pick your state is is not like doesn't represent superior achievement over the 50 percent pass rate in California. No, I think it's right. You know, it's interesting I, to speak a little self-servingly about Pepperdine. We have we have a slightly larger national profile than we did, um, you know, a decade ago and a disproportionate number of our graduates from the top quarter of our class end up getting jobs nationally and leaving the state and taking the bar elsewhere where those students would probably be, uh, have the highest likelihood of passing the California bar, but they're not included in our statistics for that particular metric because they've left the state. Um, so it's sort of an interesting uh, story of how some of the success of our own graduates actually imperils a particular statistic on U.S. News. But that might return to U.S. News. Now, it's it's an interesting way. thing about Pepperdine, too. Are th- now, are those um, are those national students, meaning non-California students who come to California because of Pepperdine and then plan to go back to where they grew up or, or to New York or to D.C.? Yeah, I, th- I think that's a pretty, pretty fair assessment. We get a number from Texas, but we, we have a pretty uh, growing Washington, D.C. program. Um, and so a lot of students want to go back to D.C. or, yeah, they, they come from all over and they plan on going back home. So it, it's a little different. You know, there are a couple of our uh, peer institutions in the regions where over 95 percent of their students take the California bar, whereas for us, it's probably closer to 75 percent, mm-hmm. uh, which is a pretty big difference, especially when you consider uh, who might be taking the bar exam. Uh, I wonder if Emory the- has an effect like that. I yeah. think Emory probably attracts more people from across the country than we do. Yeah, right. I think that's right. Oh, so they might have a similar effect. Yeah. Interesting. But, uh, is the is the Georgia bar particularly difficult? I I, I don't have a sense for that. No, I, I don't I, think it is. But I, I, I think our good... pass rate's always been above ninety percent or, okay. or thereabouts, and so it's it, it's not at all like California. But then no place is like California. <laughs> that's true. Right. That's very I mean, true. Uh, no, so so one you know one one anecdote here. My former dean failed the California bar exam. <laughs> Just Kathleen, <laughs> Kathleen Sullivan. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And, very uh, famous story. Yeah, very famous story. Um, so am I the only one in this conversation who failed the bar exam? I suspect I am. Did you fail the bar exam? I did. What? Huh. First time I took the bar, I took the Virginia bar. Uh, and that summer, between my 3L, uh, between graduating law school and starting my clerkship, uh, I was working at Tidley and not putting a whole lot of time into bar preparation, yeah. obviously, nearly mm-hmm. as much as I should have. Um, 
And the Virginia bar does, uh, the reason that I thought I would take it rather than the Maryland bar is that I thought, well, you know, it's a little harder. So fewer people have the credentials. So if I'm going to have a credential, I might as well have the one that's harder to have. Well, this was smart. And up until the moment when I failed it, um, (laughs) but but, what's the opposite of dumb, like a Fox. Yeah. yeah. Um, and, um, you know, smart like a loser, I guess. Uh, so you're not uh, going to blame it on an ill-fitting suit that the Virginia State Bar made you wear. No, no, and in, and indeed, um, I I uh, because uh, the Virginia rule on on wearing a suit did not uh, specify footwear. Um, I wore very comfortable uh, sneakers that were a very loud green color. Now wait, wait, go back. There's a rule that you have to wear a suit when you take the Virginia bar. Yeah, you have to oh, be yeah. in, dressed in a in business attire. Could so. you wear academic regalia <laughs> and, a, and, a, and a wig? Oh, that would have been great. Um, but no, so I failed the Virginia bar um, because I didn't prepare for it. Uh, and the Virginia State, uh, this relates to the uniform bar exam topic, I guess, too. Uh, the, 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 the content of the exam, particular to Virginia equity practice and other sorts of things, was sufficiently confounding to me uh, that I failed. Um, happily... Uh, I was able to use Maryland, let you use the multi-state score you achieved, even in an exam that you otherwise failed, if you used it within a year. Mm. So the following year, I sat in Maryland and uh, passed. Now, the judge for whom I clerked consoled me by telling me that he also failed the bar exam the first time he took it. Is that right? Yeah. Um, So he was like, and my life didn't get wrecked, so presumably yours won't either. Huh. So you can all judge for yourselves whether he was right about that. In my I, case, I passed the bar exam first time, but I didn't have to wear a suit. Uh, um, that, what, that is so, also my story. <laughs> you would have been peeved if you had had to wear a suit. Uh, I, uh, I can't imagine. Given how outraged you are about it now. I'm not outraged about you it. Just, I think get, it's, you get in some medium dudgeon. I I think it's um I so what is so Virginia's rule I feel like we got to go back to this because this is to me just this to me is nuts I, this is a good point it is you know, crazy I I I you know what my favorite kind of like narrative structure it's it's kind of that um uh um what's 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 the name of that 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 series by uh, Philip Pullman um you know you oh know. his dark materials yeah yeah what's the first book called Golden Compass the Golden right? Compass yeah and you know how they start in the they start in the wardrobe. You know, she's starting. This is a very small place, and the world gets bigger and bigger and bigger. Which mm. is, you know, like those are always my favorite parts of any series, like okay. the world, the world building parts, right? So it's like an like you're walking out from the center of a nautilus. And you're, yeah, yeah, exactly. Things get bigger and only more amazing. So I think this is a good place to start with our bar exam discussion. Is okay. in this very small place of Virginia making you wear a suit? Yes, uh, <laughs> and it's um, partly because it's so incomprehensible. What, what's the idea? And and what what is the actual rule? Is there a different rule for men and women? I, I don't remember the rule for women uh, or how it was stated. If it mm-hmm. was stated any differently at all, I have no idea. Right. Um, I just remember that the the rule, as I read it, made it clear I needed to wear a suit. And it made it equally clear that there was no rule about footwear. Right. And I fastened on the fact that I could wear whatever kind of footwear I wanted to make right. sure that I was not wearing, you know, your, your standard cap toe leather shoe or wingtip shoe or something like that. And mullets are... Totally acceptable, right? Party. Yeah, I guess you could. Be, what is it? What is it? Business up you, front, party in the back, right? Yeah, you could. You could rock as big a mullet as you wanted, as long as you were in a suit. And <laughs> in tie. a suit and, t- and tie. Oh yeah, yeah, because that's a part. Of, the tie is a part of a suit, right? You right. can't have a tieless suit. Is that right? You can wear your suit without a tie, but is it sure. really a suit at that point? I don't know. 
<sighs> I'd have to I, ask someone English. Yeah, I, this is amazing. Are there any other weird states like that that make you like wear powdered well, wigs or or special ribbons or special ribbons? I don't know. I mean, it's <laughs> what are they thinking? I don't. What are they even thinking? Yeah, I don't know. It's ridiculous. I think nah. it's completely indefensible. Which, which is not to say that we don't want Virginia honchos on this to come on the show. I would love for them to come on the show. And maybe they could tell us this is a very important thing because we found that blah, 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 blah. I doubt it. I doubt it. Yeah. <laughs> but, may, but maybe. I mean, Derek, what, now, how many, now, you, now I have to say Pepperdine is known as a somewhat conservative school. Is that fair? Uh, as Known as, yes. I think that's fair. Yeah. And, uh, and, and maybe you draw a certain kind of student demographic partly because of that identity. Would that also be fair? Um, I think we draw students less because of a political identity and more because of the religious identity. Oh, okay. Um, I would say, so we do students, uh, student surveys each year and we've done some sort of uh, student body wide. And I'd say in terms of sort of political ideology, our student body reflects basically almost a perfect bell curve in terms of moderates are the most sort of moderately conservative, moderately liberal, slightly less on each side and very liberal, very conservative, sort of a smaller amount on both sides and largely evened out. Um, in so, terms so of, much of this depends on baselines, right? Because the, right. the average student bo- law school student body on a national baseline has shifted to the left, right? Uh, right. That that's probably the case. I, What's the religious I, identity? So we're a uh, we're affiliated with the Churches of Christ, which is a denomination largely in the American South, but uh, so which you may be familiar with down there. Um, but we probably get about uh, about two thirds of our student body self identifies as Christian. But we have a pretty solid number uh, identified with Jewish or, or Muslim or other faiths or unaffiliated. But I do think we attract um, some students who we might not otherwise get because of that religious identity. Now, I ask about that and we can revisit it. But, but I ask about it because I wonder if that identity and maybe, maybe the religious component changes the, the question. But uh, do people do you have rules about suits there? Do professors tend to teach in suits? I mean, I'm in, I'm in the South and, and uh, there's a, a much greater, although not at all uniform suit wearing culture than I encountered on the West Coast. Maybe maybe not so different than in the Northeast. What, what's the suit wearing culture and otherwise the kind of formality of the classroom and everything? There yeah, it's interesting. You, you have this combination yeah, of, I think, some um, fairly traditional beliefs and a location in Malibu, California, which I think <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> has a somewhat of a mashup. So I'd say most faculty will wear um, suits to class, but not all. And I think there is, you know, some some variance depending on who the faculty is and what what their own views are. Uh, but the students, and you know, they, they range from fresh off the beach to you know shortly after coming off the beach. Yeah, you can't. I mean, you can't surf in a suit. That's right. That I, maybe you can. I don't know. Maybe you guys should Not have photographs of. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> that's right. That's right. Neoprene suit, sure. All right. So let let's turn to this. We'll, we'll we'll let's go to another layer of the Nautilus, since since nobody seems to be able to justify Virginia's suit wearing bar taking <laughs> practice. Oh, I thought of an argument. You did. Yeah. So I can imagine. Uh, so so a, um, it would be a foolish instantiation of I think a non foolish standard that you could state as follows. Um, it's it's beneficial to everyone taking the test if everyone appears to take the test in clothing that will not needlessly distract other test takers. 
And so you could imagine you wouldn't want people, for example, wearing T-shirts that had slogans on them that were, you know, designed to shock and outrage other people <laughs> who saw the T-shirt. Right. right. Uh, and you can imagine such a T-shirt and no problem uh, that someone might be out wearing walking around. But even if it's their favorite shirt, even if it's their good luck shirt, they feel really comfortable in it. You would prefer that they not take it because it's not fair to the other test takers for you to satisfy yourself entirely by wearing the thing you're most comfortable with, even if other people will find it sort of vexing or outraging or whatever. And so, a standard is either too hard to administer or they try to administer it and, and, and Virginia threw up their hands and say, everybody in suits. So here, here, no. So I, while you've pontificated, I've Googled. And so <laughs> wait a minute, the, I was we, not doing a Pope imitation wait. of any kind. <laughs> so we I, have our answer. Uh, yes, the, this is great. We got to have you on every week, Derek, to, uh, um, not if he's going to call me a pontificator. Well, he's, f- he's filling out our baseless, like, you know, speculation with That's actual fair. facts. That's fair. Yeah. I mean, this uh, will totally change the nature of the show, by the way, but go ahead. <laughs> Uh, it's from the board itself. The board is aware that many law firms and other professional offices have, quote, dressed down policies of varying descriptions. There is no, quote, dress down or, quote, casual dress policy at the Virginia bar exam. Applicants who come to the bar exam are expected to dress in proper attire. For men, proper attire is coat and tie. For women, proper attire is traditional business attire. Recognizing the high caliber of professionalism that has traditionally characterized the bar, the board is confident that no further discussion of this topic will be necessary. So I would say that that argument is A, conclusory. (laughs) Well, it's a hopelessly shitty justification. I just think that's a completely bogus. It's not a justification. It's completely conclusory. Like, so first of all, right. you know, we're aware. So, so they used to be able to say probably, it's worse than it's a worse than a complete failure to even try to make an argument in favor of it. Right. Because yeah. it's so hopelessly absurd. Yeah. Well, I mean, there may be good reasons. They may have good reasons. I think it's they just, just gave they, a pretty good reason. Which, yeah. Maybe that's theirs. And, uh, but that, but the one that they gave is not a good one. Yeah. It's ridiculous. It, because it's not really a reason, is it? What well, the board is confident that no further discussion of this topic will be necessary. So I think you are belying their own confidence. <laughs> I think that 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 line is in there to say that we've announced a rule, and the rule is and and just by saying that the rule is completely comprehensible and not open to uh, any ambiguity, we rule out um, any kind of uh, open texture to the law, to use Hart's terms, right? So there's no open texture here. This is like the speed limit. Right. No further discussion is necessary. Now, do you both agree with me that let's assume? for purposes of argument, that the rule I read was identical in wording to the rule Derek just quoted. Was I right to think that it was okay to wear obnoxiously loud green sneakers? Oh, absolutely. Because, because it's, it, 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 it gives a standard and then a rule, right? It's, it's <laughs> like these professional attire, and then it says, for men, that is a coat and a tie. But, you know, the loud sneakers, that was not really consistent with the overarching standard. No, and it doesn't even say professional attire. It says proper attire, right? Yeah. Which is a right. totally proper conclusory attire. word because the whole question is what's proper to wear to the bar exam, yeah. right? Are and there so they... photos attached that exemplify <laughs> the... There are not. No, see, this is the whole point, right? This, this is back to Hart's open texture, right? right? So this is, they, 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 aren't, they aren't leading by authoritative example, but by an authoritative rule that needs no further exemplification. Wow. It's it's uh, anyway. So that seems uh, nuts I, I to hope me. that seems they, nuts. I hope that they add a question to the Virginia bar that on a scale from irremediably foolish to hopeless <laughs> to hopelessly stupid. Please rate how good our dress code rule is. Well, it's I, 
no, I have to say, I don't, I don't know that they're, I think that they're, you know, they do formulate a rule like rule, right? They say for men, this means suits. And for what is it? What do they say for women again, Derek? Repeat traditional this. business attire. Okay. So traditional, so, what does that this mean? Is in the state of Virginia, traditional business attire for women. I mean, first of all, <laughs> so, so you go back that... to the 60s and traditional attire for women is, is for business attire. They weren't even, you know, allowed in business in a lot of places. Right. Um, so they have to wear invisibility cloaks? I, I don't get it. I don't either. I don't know. What Traditional. This, what a terrible that, that, word. Well, it just shows that there's not a, it's a, you know it when you see it kind of thing. Yeah. Like, right. And, and, and they're, and they're, where they're confident that people will know it when they see it. I, I don't like it. I don't I, like it. I don't I'm, like the I'm gender. I'm suddenly feeling like very, very smug about having failed this bar exam. <laughs> like, I feel like that was the right thing for me to do. Like, I spat it out like a bad nickel and it spat me out too. <laughs> Do you, now, are you absolutely sure that you didn't receive demerits for your shoes? I'm not sure. I hope I did. I think that's what... <laughs> the I, stupid, I'm going to call the it stupid that. stupid fools. I'm going to call... <laughs> we <don't, laughs> they may be... <laughs> I don't know that we can go that far with it. I just think this is a bad policy. Yeah. And, and, and it's not justified. At least by their explanation, it's not justified. Right. And, and I, would, I would... If my reason were the reason one we're trying to implement... You could do that without having to go to this business attire. Thing. You could, but then I again, if I showed up to take the bar and everybody is dressed in suits and it's all, I would be a little bit it'd be creepy. I'd be a little creeped out if you weren't wearing. A showing suit, up to take an exam and everybody's in suits, everything would feel weird. It's yeah. just weird. Is there? Is there? This is a wonderful topic, and yet I feel like there are probably <laughs> better things to talk about with Derek. Well, namely some of the stuff Derek's written about, I think you're... Well, that's an example. All right, so let's... That's why... You know, before you dragged us back in to the inner layer of the Nautilus shell, mm. do you remember when that happened? Remember I, I said, let's go to the next layer or Well, because you said there was no chamber. reason and I had thought of a reason. And, and then you so dragged us me, back in. blame me, blame yeah. me, that's and, fine. But then, but then we took this whole thing to another level when Derek actually went out and found the, the empirical data. Apropos, <laughs> of, apropos of the next... I think you call them chambers... A good segue. I think you call them chambers yeah, of the yeah. Nautilus shell. Yeah, and we're gonna and Derek Derek's moniker will now forever be the mighty fact checker because <laughs> he's all about the facts. Well, all right, what else is that's there? Who and what he is? The fact man. <laughs> so let's talk. Let's talk the great exam soft bar exam meltdown of 2014. So uh, Derek, people are tired of hearing from us. I'm sure. So do do you mind just setting the stage and telling us what happened in July 2014? Um. So I guess maybe I'll start the narrative from my own discovery. I, I occasionally uh, read some pre-law message boards, which might be another flaw and fault I have in my own life. But uh, <laughs> they, were, they were commenting on uh, that some of their uh, some of the bar results that had come in uh, early in the early fall 2014 uh, reflected a, a significant drop in the bar pass rates. And so I started looking at those and sure enough, it seemed pretty consistent that in a number of jurisdictions, the bar results were much lower than they were in the previous year. So the question, was it a problem with the bar or was it a decline in student quality? And once the uh, multi-state bar exam results were released, which is the 200-question multiple-choice uh, component, uh, they reflected not just uh, a 10-year low in those scores uh, on just that multiple-choice component, but also the single largest drop in the 40-year history of the MBE, um, which is pretty dramatic. So I, I started tracking these things and uh, trying to figure out what what might have caused this, because there 
there's a little bit of a decline in student quality in terms of the entering median LSAT scores and GPAs of law school students, but it, it didn't seem that dramatic. And so one of the thoughts was, well, maybe uh, ExamSoft caused this fiasco. That is, students were using ExamSoft, which is a software for typing answers for their essays for the essay compo- component of the bar exam. And that night when they were supposed to go home and upload the answers to the servers, there was a problem and they were unable to do so. And this dragged out for several hours as students were very stressed out and unable to submit the answers and where they were going to fail the bar. In the many states, right? I in mean, many this, states. Right? In fact, yes. in fact, in the majority of states, like most states, you well, most states use ExamSoft for this portion of their exam. Yes, absolutely. It, it by far is the most popular. There, there are only really two kinds of software you'd use, and ExamSoft is used in about 40 of the states. Um, so the thought was, well, maybe students were too stressed out from the night before and unable to perform well on the bar exam, and that contributed to the decline. Uh, or maybe the bar exam itself was flawed in some way, that the, the multiple choice questions were scored incorrectly. Uh, and then there was sort of a, a salvo back and forth between some law school deans and the multi-state bar exam itself. And um, yeah, that's a, so that, that, was, that was the problem, the issue. What caused this significant drop in bar exam score? Do you remember what, like, roughly what order of magnitude we're looking at for this drop? And this is between July 2014 and July 2013 takers. There's also a February application of the bar right. exam, but but it involves different kinds of students, uh, either ones who have delayed or who are taking it for the second, a greater proportion of second time takers. And so the the results aren't directly comparable without some, and, and we'll get into that in a second because you have a, a recent post about that. But so this right. is July to July, right? And what, what's yeah. the order of magnitude of this drop? It's about a six to eight point drop um, in overall, uh, overall pass rates. And so that varies by jurisdiction. Uh, for the MBE score itself, it was a decline of, uh, what, I think, 2.8 points, 2.8 raw points, which is meaningless unless you <laughs> right. associate with something else. Right, right, right. But you said before that that was the single largest year-to-year, one-year drop in the in the record of the exam over a few decades. Yes. Yeah, that's, that seems like a big drop. It is. <laughs> the number one big drop. <laughs> So something you'd want to investigate. And and these were, at least among first-time takers, most people... Now, I didn't take my bar exam until a year out from law school because I was clerking and didn't take it before my clerkship. Right. Um, uh, but most people take it, uh, the bar exam, in the July after graduating in, in May uh, for, yes. for most people. And um, so so for most students, this is... Uh, these were the 2014, this is the 2014 exam. And so these are students who had entered law school in 2011, Right. Yes, absolutely. Fall of 2011, um, yeah. Right. So so the students who entered in the fall of 2010 were one of the largest uh, classes that we've seen. Um, you know, it was a time uh, still in the throes of the recession. People were looking at other options and thought that uh, graduate school would be a good option if the employment market was bad. And so we had a very uh, – we, we had a pretty high uptick for a couple of years in terms of applicants – uh, and matriculants. And so the class of 2013 was uh, very large. And just, um, yeah, just to, for time uh, time capsule purposes yeah. here, I guess. Uh, so 2008 is when, uh, fall of 2008, we get the um, beginning of the financial crisis, right? Yes. And and in 2009, and I don't I don't actually, maybe you have a better sense of this as, as to the degree to which the legal market lagged behind the rest of the, the rest of the market. So I don't know how 
how long it was or when we first started to see signs that the legal market was being dragged down and firms started to downsize and not hire. But my sense was that since we're, the 2011 students are basically applying in the fall of 2010 and making decisions in spring uh, spring 2011. We were already mm-hmm. two years in. It's It seems like maybe that was the beginning of it, though, but the beginning of the apparent crisis in the legal market. And I don't even know if you could put the word crisis on at that point. I, I just don't have a good memory of. No, I, I think that's right. I think there was sort of a peak of applicants uh, in that 2009-2010 cycle. Um, and then it comes down a little bit. And maybe part of that is just attributable to natural causes. That is, uh, the recession is not quite as acute in the fall of 2011 when people are considering law school. So it's not quite as bad. Right. Uh, so you're not having as many people considering that as an option. And that's coupled with um, you know, some of these transparency efforts, um, more uh, realistic information about employment prospects, uh, more uh, serious consideration of debt loads and things like that. And so th- there might be, of course, with all these things, there might be multiple factors that are contributing to declines in the number of applicants. So we got, um, we got fewer applicants right. in, in 2011. Uh, for the class, uh, the enters fall of 2011, and so they're, they, who are now taking this 2014 bar exam in the summer. Mm-hmm. Since you're the fact guy, Derek, <laughs> I, 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 you probably don't, so no worries. But do you have at your fingertips the like the average LSAT score of the class of 2014 versus the class of 2013? It's not at my fingertips. It's but lower, but not that much lower. It's not right? that much lower. And it has kept falling, correct? So the class of yes. 2015, it's lower still. 2016, lower still. Right. Yes. Yeah, so um, Jerry Organ over at the Legal Whiteboard has uh, blogged a little more extensively about some of these things. But we can see that uh, one thing, it's hard to just say what's the what's the average or what's the median LSAT score, because that's a little bit deceptive because there's, um, you know, the the depth of the class is really what's going to contribute to a decline. Right. Usually the high high performers are going to have a very high chance of passing the bar. It's really students at the lower end of the LSAT score spectrum that are going to be at risk. And so to the extent that more of those students are matriculating law schools, that would be a problem. And there is this trend in law schools of the last several years because U.S. News – this is the U.S. News. Yeah, and I was, I was about to go there if you didn't, but, but I, know, I think I know what you're going to say, so go ahead. Yeah. yeah. So the, the U.S. News measures the median LSAT score of your incoming class, right? So if you have a class of 100, it, let's pick 101, 101 students, it measures the 51st student's LSAT score. Right. And so there is a, a very high incentive for schools to ensure that that median is as high as possible because that counts for one-eighth of the U.S. News and World Report's total rankings formula. Um, so, but it doesn't care about anything below that. So if you are using uh, an index, which is what law schools used to use, and maybe some still do, where you combine the LSAT score and the undergraduate GPA and sort of mix them up a little bit in an attempt to find the best quality of student, um, that might suggest that somebody who has a slightly below median uh, LSAT score would be a very good student. But the problem is they don't help you on the U.S. news metric if they're below your median. And as there's increasing competition for these students, as the applicant pool shrinks, schools are fighting over those median students at a higher rate. So if your median LSAT score is, let's say, a 163, it's very hard to attract 162 students because 
some other institution is pursuing a 162 as its median and offering substantial scholarship money toward them. And that means you're probably not able to attract that 162 because you're using your scarce resources to capture the 163s. And that means maybe you dip deeper into the applicant pool and admit more 161s or 160s or 159s and so on. And so we can actually measure that by looking at the 75th, 50th, and 25th percentiles of LSAT scores of incoming students. And we've actually, we, we can observe that the 25th percentile is uh, declining uh, at a faster rate than the 50th percentile at most schools, which would, suggests that the bottom end of the class is getting worse faster than the median would otherwise indicate. And that's what you should expect to see given the incentive created by the ranking. Right, absolutely. The pernicious effects of the rankings. I'm, I'm just saying in my mind going over like other... Uh, other reasons why it would be relatively easier to hold on to the top half of the class, but harder, or, or uh, I'm, uh, um, uh, uh, reverse. No, no, no. Hard, harder to hold on to the higher, slightly below median students than the way lower. Th- than the, the way student. lower. Like there's that there's that student who like is close enough to the median, but. It realizes they aren't the median and therefore maybe law school is not for them. They don't go to law school and so you have to reach deeper. Like is there some kind of – there may be a non-US news effect and I was, I'm just trying to think this out right now, which is probably not a good idea <laughs> <laughs> to speculate on. But um, One doesn't leap to mind. Um, well, no. I mean – And in yeah. fact, when you think about it, it's actually – it's harder to decline – uh, so, so the LSAT is, is roughly curved, right? It's not formally curved, but we see there's a, a natural distribution that looks like a curve. And uh, the, the median is around a 152, right? So it's actually harder to drop from, let's say, a 157 to 156 than it is to drop from a 165 to a 164. Because there are so many more students in yeah. that uh, 157, 156 band that it's actually harder to drop down that than, than, than the higher bands. So when we see declines, at least uh, up until that median point of the curve, the, you know, the, the 152, 151 area, um, when we see steep declines in the 25th percentile, that's actually also counterintuitive because we think naturally that shouldn't be occurring because there are so many more available students to help your 25th percentile um, that it wouldn't be a problem. But yeah, So, it, so, yeah, it, so if, you're, if your 25th percentile LSAT scores are decreasing at a constant rate, then it means that that the um, that the rate of students inc- deciding not to go to law school is actually accelerating. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Uh, that's coupled with the fact that um, LSAT scores are uh, applicants with the highest LSAT scores are increasingly not opting to apply to law schools. So this year we've seen that students with a 175 or higher uh, LSAT score, there's a, about a 20% decline in their applications this year over last year. Hmm. Um, and a, about a 10 to 12 point decline for students with uh, LSAT scores of 165 to 174. Whereas students with, uh, with LSAT scores lower than a 145 are actually up this year. So despite the fact that the applications are down overall, we might expect that to sort of be naturally distributed across the, the LSAT spectrum, but it's not. Actually, some of the highest quality applicants are no longer applying to law school. But again, those people don't really drive these bar statistics um, because you get anybody above, uh, I don't know, like, no. I, I'm not sure what the number is. Any, what, what is the, the failure rate for people above a 165? I'm guessing it's probably pretty low on yes. the bar exam. Yeah, I, I would say that above a 155, 
um, you are generally fairly safe, right? I mean, by fairly safe, I feel like uh, greater than 80% likelihood of passing the bar, right. uh, if not much higher, depending on your jurisdiction. Yeah. Setting, setting California aside, probably. Right, right. right. <laughs> and that, um, in, it, that index of LSAT and GPA that, that a school can use if it wants to, right. um, uh, to uh, make uh, admissions decisions. It actually is a pretty good predictor, both of performance in the first year in law school and ultimate passage of the bar, isn't it? Is it not? Yeah, absolutely. So LSAC, the the organization that runs the LSAT, will take your grades from your first year students, actually, and look back at their applicant profiles and say, here's what your ideal index formula ought to look like. It ought to weight the LSAT score 57%, and it ought to weight the undergraduate GPA 43%, or something like that, and provide you with a a very reliable um, formula to predict success in the first year. Um, And so some schools might tweak that a little bit by uh, giving some uh, bonus points if you attended an uh, elite undergraduate undergraduate institution or depending on the rigor of your undergraduate major, those are sort of uh, less uh, less objective measures, I should say. To, um, to the extent that the GPA is is a slight, slightly more a measure of, of hard work than is just the raw LSAT score, although it, both of them include a kind of intelligence and facility for learning. Um, to the extent you're trying to measure a little bit of that, you, you've got to, just like you have to correct for how hard the California bar exam is if you're U.S. News, you've got to correct for how hard it is to get a 4.0 if you're using that as a an, an admission statistic. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. All right. So, so the upshot is that if the if the 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 lower tiers in terms of uh, LSAT scores or um, and and maybe even GPAs are being admitted to law schools. Uh, in the last several years, and maybe that trend accelerated a little bit um, for the 2014 takers, you would expect to see declining. Um, you would expect to see declining bar pass rates. That's the upshot of of your argument, right? Right. Absolutely. And but, but would you expect to see that big a drop off, given that we were just at the beginning of the of the decline in statistical profile of entering students? Right. Yeah. So so. All so things such that exams have played right. no role, for example. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So we might we might look at it and say there's a decline in quality, but not so severe a decline in quality that um, we, we think uh, that we would experience the single largest drop in the 40 year history of the multi state bar exam. Right. <laughs> um, I mean, th- th- that's what we're talking about. Right. Uh, so so there might. So what are the factors that can contribute to it? So they. The uh, National Conference of Bar Examiners went back and, and verified that all of their internal processes were correct, right? That the test was as valid and reliable as it had always been, that their equating system and their scaling were accurately done. So they're saying there's nothing internal to the exam itself. So the question is what might have contributed to the decline? So and this is um, what what we might call the zombie apocalypse uh, explanation, right? That it it's something external to the bar that we think is so disastrous that it would result in a decline in the bar pass rate, um, and that's a very hard thing to articulate. We can we we can identify a zombie apocalypse, right? Um, but trying to identify whether or not a software fiasco was of such a caliber 
to cause that kind of a decline is a very hard thing to identify. Uh, the National Conference of Bar Examiners said, well, maybe there are some other things that might contribute to it. Maybe it's that schools, 25th percentiles, are so much lower that we were deceived into thinking that the quality of the students at the median uh, was slightly lower when at the bottom maybe it's much lower. Or maybe there have been changes in uh, educational pedagogy that are now resulting in a decline in bar pass rates or and, and sort of uh, postulating that maybe there are a lot of different things that are going on that schools should be seriously considering. Now, online, I've seen you've been, as far as I can tell, the main one of the main proponents of the idea that uh, we don't need to look at the exam soft fiasco to explain the decline, or at least looking at the way the exam soft fiasco was spread around the country, it doesn't seem like that is the most important thing. Whereas uh, Deborah Merritt, who you've probably followed, will put up her blog posts on the show too, has been a main proponent of the idea that exam soft is indeed, um, uh, if not chief, uh, if not entirely, maybe mostly to blame for for the decline. Is that the landscape? Yeah, yeah I, I think that's right. Yeah, so uh, I, I've exchanged some emails with uh, uh, Debbie here and there uh, on this matter. And I think – so w- what I started with is a very high level of data because I think um, it, it's very hard to figure out the causation here, right? And this is always our, our problem. <laughs> what caused the decline? So we can start some very high levels of data. And so I, when we say maybe it was exam soft, it's, well, we can break this down into actually several different components. We can look at – jurisdictions that use exam soft versus the handful of jurisdictions that don't use exam soft. And we can also break it down by looking at jurisdictions that have a uh, Tuesday assay Wednesday MBE because Tuesday was the night of the exam soft debacle uh, and looking at jurisdictions that have a Wednesday MBE Thursday assay because then they wouldn't have had a a problem on Thursday. Um, And when we look at that, it it seems that it's sort of randomly spread around the country, right? There there doesn't seem to be any particular locations uh, that the exam soft locations all saw the significant decline, whereas the other locations saw modest declines to modest gains. Um, So that was the starting point for me was looking at that and not seeing too much that would suggest it was really uh, caused by ExamSoft. So if we just take the ExamSoft jurisdictions, uh, just to summarize what you just said, yeah. uh, some of those were affected by the debacle because of w- when they administered particular parts of the test. Right. And some were not, which provides kind of a natural experiment uh, um, because uh, uh, you would then expect to find if the reason for the decline mainly where the debacle, you would expect to, yeah. to, to find great declines where the debacle occurred right. and no declines where it didn't, or at least uh, not of the same magnitude. And and you didn't find that. Right. Yeah. I, and I, so part of it is, is what can we... No, can, I have a question. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. so some states used ExamSoft, but I take it that not every state that was using ExamSoft had their students experience an inability to upload their answers. My understanding of what happened that night was that some people had a problem, but that some did not, and that we don't actually have a very good handle on where that problem was localized. Is that right? Yeah, so I've actually had difficulty tracking down this data, and I I haven't really written much about it, but yeah, you have it right that I, I think the extent of the problem is largely unknown, right? That is, it didn't affect every exam taker in every jurisdiction equally, right? It's not that every exam taker was delayed 10 hours and stayed up until 
five in the morning the night before the MBE. As I understand it, it was very inconsistent across jurisdictions and across individuals who are affected. I just I, I haven't been able to find anything that's been more specific. There have been um, some litigation that's been filed involving ExamSoft, but you know complaints often have uh, fairly generic factual allegations at this level. Yeah. And th- there's no question that some were affected, but the magnitude of the impact is certainly unknown. Now, the reason that I ask is because, of course, your, your use of uh, ExamSoft jurisdiction versus not and Tuesday essay versus Thursday essay, um, those, are, those are perfectly good proxies given what we can know. Yes. Um, but they're just that proxies. And, and, and if we, we, we would be able to do a much better job with the causal story if we could simply focus on, <laughs> you know, how did students do if they had the exam solve problem versus students who didn't? And, right. we can't, and we can't know that. Yeah, absolutely. All right, so here's so as, here's how I understand. So your findings, you know, again using these proxies, is that, um, and you and you don't have the granular data that that Joe would like. It, it's just that, <laughs> and, and no one does, right? Exactly. Yeah. It's yeah, not yeah. that he didn't do something well, he no, should have course, done. Of He's, course, yeah. yeah. Um, of course, uh, is that you know the, because you look at places where this problem didn't occur and they also declined. You know, basically, and you were more sophisticated about it than this, but but basically because you you found the same decline almost everywhere, or at least where you saw the declines, it didn't seem to correlate very well with whether they had the problem. Therefore, student quality is the best explanation. In other words, declining student quality, which which probably means declining student quality in the lower quartile. Of, uh, of of admission statistics, and what what do you want to interrupt there? Because I was going to kind of summarize what I thought uh, Deborah Merritt's arguments were. No, well, yeah, well, I'll just pause there and say I think that certainly contributes still to some of the decline. You know, I, I'm not persuaded that it explains all of the decline. Uh, there might still be other factors contributing to it, uh, and I think this is some of the things that yeah, yeah, Deborah Merritt has written about or that. Um, uh, was suggested by Erica Mosier at the National Conference of Bar, Bar Examiners or that Vikamar has written a little bit about, that there might be other factors that schools want to investigate internally in terms of their own admissions process, in terms of uh, their own educational pedagogy. I, I don't know. Um, th- th- those might be there. But I think uh, more is attributable to the decline in quality um, than maybe was uh, immediately suggested after sort of pointing the finger at exam software. Well, what she said is kind of interesting, and I, and I, don't, I, I, I don't know that I exactly um, read your response to, to this particular point, right? Was that, okay, so you look at this, you look at state by state, you look at states that had the problem, states that didn't, and what you find is that the declines and then those few states that saw gains, that it doesn't seem to correlate at all with uh, whether or not they had the exam soft problem. And mm-hmm. what she says is you have to remember that when, uh, the, when the bar exam is administered, they not only norm the exam against all test takers that year, but they also use these control questions from year to year in order to tell whether or not they have a better or worse group. So they try to maintain a sense of standards over time. So what, you know, listeners are probably, you know, you think of any other exam and, and, and you curve it, right? Because you, you just assume, well, my median student on this exam is basically a median student or something like that. And, mm-hmm. and, and therefore, you know, the particular scale that I choose shouldn't matter. What I should do is, is basically specify a curve and I'll specify my strong and weak students by their performance in relation to one another. Um, but for an exam like the bar exam, it does happen that for whatever reason, and, and maybe some of the structural changes that we've 
seen in, in the admissions market, uh, this has certainly happened over time, that some classes are better or weaker than other classes. And so we have c- questions in there which are the same from year to year or roughly the same. I didn't really get this or I didn't read carefully enough so that we can tell whether this crop of students is performing better or worse on the same difficulty of questions. And then once we know we've got a weaker group, it means that um, uh, you've got to perform better within that group relative to the other people in that group in order to pass, right? Um, yeah. It, because, you know, basically, so once we've determined from the control questions that this is a weaker crop, then we're going to set the the passage rates and they encourage states to do this, and I guess many do. We, the, the standards are set as an absolute matter a little bit higher than they would have been if the control questions had identified this group as a strong group, right? And so this mm-hmm. is a mechanism by which she says that the uh, having a number of students, a significant group of students affected by this problem means that they performed weaker, more, more weakly, right? Mm-hmm. And, and that, that weaker performance bleeds over because that identifies the whole crop of students as somewhat weaker, which therefore sets the standard for passage a little bit higher, and therefore you get a lower pass rate. Um, that's the, is it, do I have an understanding of her argument? Right. That's right. So I, I think, so the question then is this, um, if everybody is affected by the MBE scaling process, which is what would happen here, right? The, the, and this, the, this is the multi-state bar exam. This yes. is the, the multiple choice yes. for most people, like most states have a two day bar exam. Some states like California have a three day exam. One of those days is a national multiple choice exam on general law. And then oftentimes states will have their own kind of essay portion on a second day. And some states have more than one day of this, uh, California being one. Um, and so what we're talking about here is the multi-state bar exam, which is that multiple choice exam that is the same uh, for everyone. Yeah. Right. So if you show up on Wednesday for that multiple choice test and let's say you are in um, – let me, let me pick a state. Uh, Wisconsin or what uh, Maine or one one of these jurisdictions like Arizona that didn't have exam solved, right? So you're going into that multiple choice test and theoretically you are going to perform as well as you would have under any other circumstance. But the problem is your cohort has been affected by the zombie apocalypse, right? Everybody else is performing worse. And that means that your score doesn't look as good because there's a suggestion that this group is performing poorly. Right. right. And that drink brings your score down a little bit. So I, 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 I confess I'm not an expert in um, item response theory or in how the equating process works. So I'll, I'll grant that as a possibility. But I think what happens then is if your score is brought down slightly because everybody else's score looks worse. I think the problem is that's the only thing that's going to have affected you and your score. In other jurisdictions, they're going to be hit because they theoretically are scoring poorly. (laughs) They're performing much worse on the exam, drawing down that average. So if you're in the exam soft jurisdiction, we should expect your scores to still be much lower than the scores in the non-exam soft jurisdictions. So even though there might be some kind of uh, spillage from the exam soft jurisdictions into the non-exam soft jurisdictions, because the equating process will draw down your scores in a non-exam soft jurisdiction, you still should be outperforming the folks in the exam soft jurisdictions if their scores are so dramatically low because of that problem that 
that they they're bringing down your scores as well. So I I think because of the the because, nature because you're because you're going to do better on the multi-state multiple choice exam. Yeah. Right. So you, I think, yeah. Go ahead. Yeah. So we, we, we might see a decline, but again, we're dealing with relatives here. And yeah. so we might see a small decline in the non-exam soft jurisdictions because they took a hit from the equating, whereas we would expect to find a bigger decline in the exam soft jurisdictions because they got a hit not just from the equating, but from scoring lower overall anyway. Which is the mechanism of action that's been posited as the cause of the whole problem. So you the the pattern across those states you you wouldn't expect it to be it would be weird to have a problem that could both um, cause the thing Deborah Merritt has described as Christian summarized it mm-hmm. and blur out the effect comparing exam soft versus non exam soft states right. such that it disappeared that would yeah. be that would be quite strange oh, well that and that's a very concise way of putting it much more so than yeah I don't uh, hmm. So, so your failure to observe that effect using those proxies, um, you know, is is a is part of the picture. The 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 Knox that she has described is another part of the picture. Yeah, it seems like one con, one frustration that was it Jerry Organ who who expressed this frustration that um, the the fact that that we don't have non non conference national conference of bar examiner people inspecting their data fully is part is another part of the problem. That's right. Yeah. So I think there is some lack of transparency. Now, to be fair, I think there are um, people who are in the legal academy who participate in the NCBE, right? It's not that it's just a a total group of statisticians weighing things, right? There are law professors who are writing some of these questions and involved in some stage of the process. Are are you making an argument in favor or against? (laughs) No, no, no. I'm not arguing. Can I I just provide data? Uh, I mean, at a high level, I think there's some involvement, but I I, I would definitely agree with um, Jerry and others that uh, more transparency to the process is valuable and understanding more of what's going on behind the scenes, some of the data that they have would be valuable. Um, but, uh, well, and, and apart from whether it's valuable generally, I'm just, I I was actually making a narrower point about the fact that when it comes to explaining what happened in July, 2014, Mm -hmm. a kind of audit and investigation, uh, for, from independent parties, right? So we've got these expressions from, from Moser uh, and the president's page of the national conference of bar examiner publication saying we did, we did an internal check, Mm -hmm. right? And that's good. I'm glad they did. Um, but but if there were any blind spots, they would be the people most likely to have them. No, I'm I'm not familiar with what they release and what they don't. Do we have state by state, multi state bar exam raw scores, or do they not release that? They do not release that, to my knowledge. I think it's left to each jurisdiction whether to release it, and we see a, a few jurisdictions do release that, but many do not. Because that that would be, I think, extremely valuable. Yeah. Well, and, and again, in terms of explaining this one event, even if you didn't do it generally, right? Saying, okay, here, here's a here's a blue ribbon group who's going to investigate and write a report on what caused the drop, right. and the and this group gets to see whatever they want, and yeah. and 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 hire the best consulting statistical experts and psychometricians and whoever else they want to hire and whoever and whatever they want to see, they get to see. Um, until they've satisfied themselves that they can explain it to the best of their I, abilities. I propose, I propose the Miller-Muller panel. <laughs> That'd be great. Uh, <laughs> now, I mean, I, w- I would be careful here I, because th- th- it's easy to conflate the internal equating process that the NCBE does 
with trying to factor in something external to the exam itself, right? And so maybe you're right, right? Maybe it would be useful for us to dig into the NCBE's data in order to figure out whether something external to the NCBE caused the problem, right? But we're not digging into the data because we think that NCBE did something nefarious. And that's, I think, a little bit of the difference. Their audit is oh, going to be yeah. internally reliable, right? right? I mean, well, I mean, to the extent we, we doubt them, um, but but our problem is less with the fact that we think the NCBE screwed up, right? Which was initially what my reaction was, um, and, and I, I'm less convinced of that. But maybe uh, an independent audit would would indicate otherwise. Well, it's just that we can't tell how much hypothesis testing is going That's on right. and what right. hypotheses were. And tested. I didn't mean to suggest, yes. um, and, and I'm not saying you you said I did mean to suggest, but I didn't mean to suggest that there was anything nefarious at all. Right. Yeah. I, I, but merely that. Um, when when an event has occurred that makes you want to go back and double check, you might not be the best person to exclusively <laughs> go back and double check your own work because right. part of what could have happened is a blind spot that you have about your own internal processes. So that's why having external audits are a good thing generally. I heard you to be saying that this was all in bad faith. It was a conspiracy with the Virginia <laughs> with the Virginia Sartorial Committee and, and that it all goes back to your failing the bar exam, which is a yeah. new piece of information which I intend to use repeatedly on the show uh, and, and in our why do you private, think why do you uh, think yeah. I mentioned it? Because uh, I'm trying to good. I'm trying to spice up our conversation. Well <laughs> I didn't realize I needed it. I, but but maybe it does. Yeah. Uh uh, okay, so we we have a lot of places we could go from here. Um, I'm, you know, one question is, you know, what I, I I guess we know what you really think, Derek, and that's that um st- that that you have your best guess is that student quality explains most of the decline, and and one additional reason you have for that is the February uh, 2015 results, right? Um, now say why that helps. Well, but but then I also want us to just you know um to think about this whole enterprise of the bar exam. I'd like to have at least a few minutes where we talk about that. Of course, because if Eric's right, we're going to continue to see these declines. Excuse me, if Derek is right about the cause, uh, that it's declining student quality, we're going to continue to see declining bar scores. And uh, right. Scores, yeah, right. Yeah. yeah. Let's, so, so, so do the 2015 thing first. Yeah. Uh, do the Derek. February thing. Right. So, I mean, regardless, so even if I'm, whether I'm right or wrong, I think everyone agrees we will continue to see declines in scores regardless maybe not as severe or maybe it'll plateau if last year was a one-year aberration but in the february 2015 we've also seen a fairly significant drop in mbe scores not unprecedented part of that is perhaps because the february bar uh, you know, i think as you alluded to earlier is a little bit more idiosyncratic in terms of who's taking it um but w- w- we might expect a few things right we might say if it's true that there was this one-time problem with ExamSoft in July 2014 and a bunch of people failed the bar who otherwise should not have failed, we might expect them to come back in February of 2015 and maybe pass the bar at higher rates or yeah. at least not perform worse, right, if we think these folks are just as qualified uh, as they were in previous years or of somewhat comparable quality. Um, but we're starting to see, again, a pretty significant decline across the board. California's bar results come out today, um, and, and that should wrap it up. But in most jurisdictions, uh, you know, a 7 to 10-point decline in overall bar pass rates. And it won't be for some time that we'll find the more granular data about the first-time passers uh, versus repeaters. Wait, that like seven that. to 7-point decline from February 2015 to February 2014? Yes, yes. And and what and what was the decline again from July 2014 to July 2013? Also about seven to eight points. Yeah. Six to eight points. Um, so then, so there's an additional so, so theory. So if, that might so if you had a theory that there was this 
the the February 2015 sitting had this bumper crop of wrongly denied students, right? right. Um, you wouldn't expect to see that result at all. You would right. You would expect to see probably some uh, flattening of the bar pass rate, assuming a small decline in quality, but a small uptick in right. the people who were wrongly denied, such that um, it was a wash. Right. Uh, uh, or you might even see it go up. So right. it, bol- it bolsters the hypothesis that the people that is just regular old Joes, people who fail the bar exam, right. on, <laughs> that it was a, that it was a declining quality <laughs> problem <laughs> and not a, correct. Right. Wearing the wrong kinds of shoes. Right. And yes. All those things. Yeah. A um, bunch of Joe Millers. Goddamn. Yeah. But then there's an additional wrinkle saying that maybe the February 2015 bar exam is different also because it's the first time that civil procedure has been included among the multi-state bar exam 200 multiple choice question topics. Ah. For the last uh, 30 years. So actually, when the, when the MBE was started in the early 70s, it only had five subjects. Um, it had uh, evidence. Oh, I think I'm going to have this right. Contracts, torts, property, crim law, and evidence. And then they looked at adding some subjects, and they added a sixth con law. And it's actually – I've been reading – this is, again, great research for tenure purposes. Reading <laughs> the, um, the, 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 the bar examiner magazines from the mid-70s and reading people saying you can't, qu- you can't include objective questions about constitutional law. They're impossible to draft. <laughs> Students will be unable to answer them, things like that. Um, but regardless, they added that sixth subject. So this year, they added civil procedure as a seventh subject to the multi-state bar exam. So, um, you know, again, most basically all law students have taken civil procedure. Most jurisdictions test civil procedure on the essays anyway. But it is, you know, prepping uh, somewhat different in kind for multiple choice questions and prepping specifically for the federal civil procedure rules, which they might not have tested if they were dealing with local essays. And so saying maybe that would contribute to the decline in the scores for this cycle. And so maybe we have a second zombie apocalypse uh, that students are ill-prepared for this bar exam because there's a new subject and they're cramming more information into their head. But again, again, totally observable to the people administering the test because you can look at what the raw scores would be exclusive of the Correct. CIPRO questions, you can extrapolate. and then If you we can get those data, yes. You can figure no, out to what absolutely. extent the CIPRO so, questions depressed uh, performance. And, and, absolutely. And that, we can't actually, get them. <laughs> <laughs> right. Well, so yeah, the most useful thing about equating is we can go back and they would only equate, they would have anchor questions, you know, previous, uh, previously administered questions on those six subjects that had been previously tested. So if people performed extremely poorly on civil procedure, uh, they would be able to sort of cure that and say, oh, well, these questions are flawed. We can throw them out or we're going we're gonna, to uh, equate the exam in such a way to account for that. Uh, but the argument might be, and I don't necessarily adhere to this, uh, that civil procedure causes students to spend less time on those other six subjects, which means that they are performing uh, more poorly compared to the similar cohort from last February, uh, which then brings down the equated scores, uh, the, the similarly situated scores, which then brings down the overall scores in the test. Oh, yeah, that one's going to be really hard to pull apart. <laughs> yeah. yeah, because you just can't. Um, no, that's right. Because because this because that un, under that theory, the student really is less prepared for the bar exam. And then we then we're trying to distinguish between reasons why they're less prepared. Yep. Yes. 
And, Absolutely. and that's something you can't study just by looking at the tests, I assume. So w- right. in terms of the more general direction you wanted us to take, Christian, yeah. what were you, what were you, what were you, say, say some things about okay. what you, what that might be. Number one, should we have a bar exam at all? Number two, <laughs> should we have the uniform bar exam? Should we have, why do we have these 50 states with 50 different bar exams? Chimerinsky's. So an, an entirely uniform. Because we already have a half uniform right. to the degree that people are using the multi-state bars. Right. And many states, like I, I, I um, took and, by the way, passed on the first try um, cool. for the record. Congrats. Uh, the bar exam in, in uh, the bar exam in Connecticut. Mm-hmm. And Connecticut doesn't actually, um, at least when I took it, um, we were instructed that the Connecticut essay portion on the second day uh, tested only general law. So it was pretty much like law school exams on the topics. And there were a few other topics that weren't on the multi-state that we had to study. But it's not like you had to know Connecticut law. You just had to make general legal arguments using general law cool. uh, to pass. And so in a sense, that's like a national exam. Yep. But it's not the same exam administered by other jurisdictions. But, but uh, a lawyer who wants to take the Mississippi exam and the Connecticut exam and the New York exam is only burdened by taking the Connecticut exam to the extent that he or she has to study additional topics that those other jurisdictions don't require um, and having to sit for another day or something like that, but not burdened at all by having to learn another state's law. Yeah, uh, That's not true of all states or maybe even very many states. I don't, I don't know. Um, so that's so that's one. But I think a lot of this goes back to why we want a bar exam. Like what purpose do we think that it's <laughs> serving? And, you know, we certainly have law school entrance requirements on the front end. Um, mm-hmm. And as law schools proliferated, especially in the 2000s, maybe it got easier to go to law school. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so not everything there is controllable by state bars. Uh, and then at the uh, you have performance during law schools where presumably students who shouldn't be lawyers or shouldn't be lawmakers or shouldn't be legal thinkers of some are weeded out. That doesn't really happen a lot, I think, these days. And then you have this ex post control of the bar exam. And then maybe further on, you have disciplinary stuff, right? So there's almost there's this timeline of possible places to mm. kind of get people off of the right. law practice train. Um, and we could have a show about all these things. And, and in some ways, the, the U.S. News show was one about the early stages in a yeah. way. But, but yeah. the question is like, what is the purpose of this post-law school? After you've been awarded a degree by your law school – what additional value is served here? And then what are the costs of achieving that, right? Because there are yeah. always opportunity costs. So I, I wanted to just get you guys, you know, your, your reactions to to what you think the purpose is and whether it's uh, how, how valuable it is relation in relation to other things we could be doing. Yeah, I think um, – so I, I was reading a California report recently as they are considering moving from three days to two days for the bar exam and they receive a significant number of comments uh, unsurprisingly, from members of the bar uh, about that concern. And they said, you know, I, I think there's some confusion about what people think the bar exam is supposed to do. It's not about predicting success as a lawyer. It's not trying to determine whether or not you're ready to practice law. It, it's saying all we are testing is the minimum competence in the law. Uh, and essentially, it's confirming that you got everything you needed out of a few years of law school to now enter the bar, right? Um, and it, you can ask, is that the most efficient way of doing it? Or should we have that kind of thing at all? And I think you, you've alluded to some of those points, uh, I think, to say, if law schools only graduated people who met certain minimum competency requirements, 
or if the state bar, the American Bar Association would patrol schools more closely to ensure that they were doing so, then you would probably have less need for a bar exam. Um, it's a question of whether or not those structures are in place to ensure that all law school graduates um, are those who have the minimal competence or whether or not we think the bar exam itself is the right test for minimal competence. And whether law schools have the right incentives. I mean, that's certainly right, one of the critiques right. of what's happened in the in the uh, 2000s, the early 2000s, is that you get law schools showing up in a way that um, and maybe to a less lesser degree, but but kind of on this wave of of um, uh postgraduate schools of very, you know, whether they're culinary schools or other things kind of just pop up in order to kind of siphon off federal loan money. Um, right. There's a concern that law school's incentives is not to do that first step, like uh, it, especially these kind of newer schools. And I, I, I'm not competent to talk about that right now. I've got, you know, I don't want to critique any, I don't want to criticize any particular law school here because I just don't know enough uh, to right. do that. And I certainly don't know anything about their motivations, but I think we can talk about incentives, right? And, and the question here is, does, do law schools have the incentive not to graduate people who the, the bar would not want admitted to practice for competency reasons? Mm-hmm. And then the, the question is, well, do the bar examiners have the right incentive to do that if law schools don't? And have they chosen a good method for doing that? Right, because yeah, it, it doesn't. It doesn't feel like a a single day, two hundred question, multiple choice uh, test on general principles of common law for a lot of these right. subjects, like property and torts, is necessarily the best indicator of whether or not you're competent to practice law. Um, but then you ask, well, what, what would a better system look like? So New Hampshire has a, this program called the Daniel Webster Program or Daniel Webster Scholars or something like that, where they essentially have developed an alternative means to the bar exam where you have developed a portfolio of your work from law school, um, including discussions with uh, other attorneys or attorneys who observe you interacting with uh, prospective clients and sort of simulated coursework, things like that. Um, and that the the board would sort of individually review these files to determine whether or not you are competent to practice law. Um, that's a very time-consuming process. <laughs> that's something that requires uh, the law schools to feel comfortable with developing that kind of a record for their law students We're in an environment that's traditionally based on a single three-hour exam at the end of each semester. Um, but it, it is an alternative and one that's floated out there and actually existing in the real world about a different way of testing minimum competency. Is, is there – there's only one law school in the state of New Hampshire. Is that right? Yes. Uh, and the other state that does something uh, atypical is Wisconsin. Uh, right which does not require for a person who attended, I think it's true equally whether you went to Marquette or whether you went to the University of Wisconsin Law School, and I think those are the only two law schools in the state of Wisconsin. Yes. Um, I think that if you attend them and you graduate successfully, uh, you're not required to take an additional bar exam to practice law. You're licensed to practice in Wisconsin. Mm -hmm. Um, I don't believe they recognize that from other states. That's correct. Uh, and I think there's been litigation about that, <laughs> right? Yes. Uh, in the Seventh Circuit. Um, but in any event, um, one thing I think it's notable is that those states with such with so few schools, right, and, and frankly, in, as a population matter, right, <laughs> um, it, they don't sound like they would scale very well d- depending on what your central concern is, 
Right. And maybe they would scale in some other set of central concerns. But um, but it's interesting that, you know, neither of those states have, you know, they haven't experienced wide scale social collapse uh, in the <laughs> state of Wisconsin. Whether, I was going to ask whether this accounts for the notorious incompetence of Wisconsin lawyers. <laughs> <laughs> um, and of course, I kid. But, right. you know. but, you know, so it's it's interesting. I mean, maybe yeah. I mean, my my own sense is that. Um, you know, most states, uh, you're not permitted to sit for the bar unless you've attended an ABA accredited school. Right. So the accreditation process is is part of the picture as well, right? Not just w- right. what are schools doing generally, but it's what are accredited schools doing. Um, and that, you know, I, I'm actually, um, I, I, I do think... I, I, I can't figure out my own mind about whether or not I, th- I think it would be good to have a world where there were no post-graduation exam. Um, I'm, I think it would be much better to be in a world where there were a post-graduation exam that was uniform for the whole country mm-hmm. um, and where there wasn't a passing and failing, but rather there was simply an obligation uh, that you you had to provide to any prospective client um your score on that exam oh boy boy. um and that and 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 because i do think it's i do think it's difficult for some consumers of legal services to have a sense for trying to figure out who the good lawyers are and who the bad lawyers are and why not just give them your law school transcript well i suppose we could right and 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 that um the reason not to is because it's hard to compare. That's not an apples to apples comparison, right? What courses did you take at what school from what people in what yeah, year? Yeah, but you could glance. It probably gives a better picture than how the person performed on a two day. Better in some respects, exam. but worse in others, right? Yeah. Because again, if you don't know how to well, assess what yeah. what those exams were in those courses at that school at that time, right? Whereas this national exam, right, would at least be an it would at least let you make apples to apples. Well, this is my frustration though. Like, what is the social problem here that we're trying to solve? <laughs> is it incompetent lawyers? Is it because my sense is like the biggest problem with with lawyers vis a vis like consumer protection is they don't call you back. Right. <laughs> they they miss filing deadlines. That's certainly the they're, most common. They're complaint. drinking too much or whatever right. else, and you know, and and they they blow past deadlines. Um, right. Is it, you know, and of course, you know, we live in a world where people have to pass the bar exam, except in these two states, which could provide a nice experience. Is it lawyer stupidity, though? Is that one of the problems that we're trying to, and does this solve that problem? I don't, I I mean, no, 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 I'm thinking out loud here, too. Uh, I I think if we, malpractice claims are very hard to win, right? And maybe, maybe we like that. And maybe that means we have to have some structures in place at the front end that will sort of ensure that minimum competence level such that we feel some confidence that these folks are going to practice out there, particularly given that malpractice uh, is such a difficult case for the client to win. I mean, they can win ethical complaints or things like that, but that doesn't really uh, get them satisfaction in the same way that they might otherwise if they lost their case. Um, but I, I don't know. I, 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 I do wonder about the problem that we're trying to calibrate toward. There's something that doesn't feel entirely right about saying anyone can go out and practice law. Yeah. Right? Um, I mean, maybe you say, well, and is it, is it better that you say you have to have obtained a JD from an ABA accredited school as opposed to what, what if we had something, and I'm not 
as familiar with something like accounting or uh, you know real estate exams or things like that, but where you don't necessarily have to have obtained the degree, but you've passed some minimal competency in terms of a licensing requirement. And once you've obtained the licensing, you're free to do as you wish. And you've done that, and it can come with a JD, or it doesn't have to come with a JD. But we feel that somebody is out there patrolling it in this licensing regime. Let me zoom out again for a second. And just, you know, if part of it is we have a system in which the resolution of disputes and therefore the responsibility for resolving things fairly to you uh, falls on an agent who is the one person charged with protecting your interests. And that's, you know, that's the way the, the conflict system that we have works instead of a system which is designed to get to right answers through kind of mutual cooperation of various institutions, right? It's, it's, it's about really this, this kind of combat idea. But if you extend that and, and, I have, you know, I I love that idea when I went to law school because part of the part of the canon in my head, you know, it, going into law school were these like the flag burning case and some other like Supreme Court cases where there were these, you know, there was a right side, there were there were good guys and bad guys and uh, you know not really bad guys, but you know what I mean. Um, right. uh, in fact, you know, when I started law school, they started this law school heroes series of speakers that they brought in. And and one of my suggestions was to start a like law school villains <laughs> series, and, and then maybe make either trading cards or figures, action oh, figures, the law school heroes and villains. Yeah, so it's like it's not just like uh, the, uh, the people arguing uh, in favor of of the Lovings, but it's also the the state of Virginia, and you know, anyway, Virginia is really getting beaten up in this episode. They really are. Uh, <laughs> anyway, anyway so but if you ext- so you know may- maybe that's so I. I, I was really, but then, but now I, I, I really am starting to, to question, to question this and wonder if there's a better way of, of organizing, um, of organizing our, our attitude toward disputes. And, and as skeptical as I was about kind of ADR stuff in law school, I, it's not exactly that, but let me bracket all that for a second. Just assume we're going to stick with this uh, system of resolving disputes. If we actually had combat, you know, imagine we still, you know, resolved everything through trial by combat. And so your agent was actually someone who would beat the crap out of somebody. <laughs> Right. Nice. Um, Westeros. And, yeah. But imagine that. Uh, so so you, what you want to know is you have somebody who actually knows how to swing a sword and fight. Right. Or or maybe use boxing gloves. I don't know what the kind of combat is. We could talk about this if you'd like. But uh, um, and, and you, you know that that everybody who's going to fight for you has been through some kind of fight school. But you don't know. I don't know fighting. I'm a farmer. I don't know about this stuff. So, you know, I haven't inspected all these fight schools. I don't know how good they are, this kind of thing. But I know that they've passed the regional exam where they have to do push-ups and Mm pull-ups. And they did, you know, 200 of these, right? More than I could have done. But, you know, there are some stronger farmers. They could, like like the the guy on Catch Me If You Can who who passed the bar exam without going to law school. There are people who could pass this without sure. going to a fight school, right? But, sure. but people have been, been through fight school for three years. You expect them to be able to do the number of push-ups and pull-ups required, right? Mm-hmm. Are the people who do that, like by requiring that, have you filtered out the incompetent fighters? Is that what you're trying to do with that exam? And, and is that the best way? You, you know what I mean? I, so I'm trying to figure out... You know, to the extent this is about policing like minimally competent agents, um, uh, is this the best way of doing it? And maybe thinking about actual combatants <laughs> is a way of thinking about like what would you test in that situation, where the where the, where the degrees of competency and the different kinds of skills required are maybe a little bit more obvious than in the practice of law, or maybe sometimes we in a reductionist way think a lot about just raw intelligence or. But we should be thinking about other things like propensity to go on a drinking bench or propensity to blow past deadlines or, you know, 
Like, I, I don't know how you measure that kind of stuff. Um, I mean, there is the character and fitness part of the bar. I don't know if you guys want to get into that. I think that's, not, you know, I wonder if that's effective at all. I haven't done any reading about it. Anyway, I'm just throwing some random stuff out there. Why not? It's, it's you know, getting late in the show. Everybody's already turned it off already. So, uh, <laughs> but this is, as we know, this is where the show gets interesting. So, um, uh, either you guys want to pick that up, this mess that I've left in front of you. I, I, I guess, yeah, I, I just don't know. There's no question that whatever system you come up with is going to be over-inclusive and under-inclusive to some extent, right? And so all we're asking is this question of fit. To the extent we think that the bar exam is testing minimal competence to the extent we think minimal competence is valuable, is it the right fit? Um, and I don't know. I, I, I'm not sure how um, – I mean as much as people rail against the bar exam, I think it, it is pretty consistent with um, – your GPA in law school. So to the extent that we think your GPA in law school is indicative of something about your success in the legal profession or your ability to understand and analyze legal issues, right? I think that's something we as law professors might argue. Um, To the extent it reflects that, uh, that I think is an argument in favor of its validity and reliability as an exam. But it's an argument Um, against having the exam. Right. Uh, but uh, again, that assumes <laughs> right. assuming it, schools are incentivized to make sure that only people who meet a certain standard are those who graduate from law school. And then again, I mean, and this is another not to move in a different direction, but, uh, you know, legal education is moving in a different way where the, the JD has some value, right? Not as valuable in many other careers, but has some value not as a credential to practice law, but for other matters, including consulting or things like that. Um, And we might be comfortable with people obtaining that degree without passing the bar in a different way. I don't know. And that might be a good thing. I mean, this this is something we'll talk about in another show, too, about the the nature of the JD and whether society would be better off with more people who had training in the law and the ways of, 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 of legal reasoning and fewer lawyers. Right. Yeah. I, I don't know. Go one ahead, Joe. Thing, you're you're thinking. We, over there. One thing that we observe uh, to, to actually get away from the normative question for a moment. One thing we observe is that uh, because we let, and, and I am now speaking from personal experience, right? Um, we let people take different bar exams and we let people take the same bar exam more than once. Yeah. Um, and so one thing we observe in this world is there are people who successfully receive a JD degree from an accredited school and remain unable successfully to pass the bar exam. There is a non-zero group of people, right? Yes. There's a set with more than zero people in it uh, of such folks. And they are the ones who we're telling are, are not allowed to represent the interests of another as an agent in the way that Christian described. Mm-hmm. They're allowed to do anything else that having a JD lets you do better than not having one lets you do. Right. Um, but we don't let them represent the interests of parties in courts. Do we have any data? Or are you guys familiar with any studies on, on whether there are more malpractice claims or uh, against people who were um, who had to take the exam more than once yeah you're joe's of the world yeah i don't know <laughs> I, you know i'm not in that world because i didn't i didn't take the virginia exam again 
I took a I took a different state's bar exam. Well, I, let's just say people who've ever failed any bar exam. But it, you could do either one. It doesn't really matter. But yeah, and you, I you, you know the point, though, right? Yeah, that, and sounds I don't, like and I don't call, know. that sounds like a call for emails to, what is it, oral argument podcast at gmail.com? Yeah, this is, we do, we, we need our army of, of crack researchers out there to let us know of any studies about this. Because I, <laughs> right. I would, that would be interesting, right? I mean, it would be. That, that would tell you that the bar exam is measuring something which is related ultimately to competence, but it, it relies but, on the proxy, course, the malpractice for the, claim. But for and, the group of folks I specified, of course, there will be no malpractice claims against them because right. they're not allowed to practice law. Right. So, I, the, <laughs> right. so, so the, right. the point is that, that the, it does seem like the, this exam, which is an exam about legal topics, um, is n- not an exam that everyone who's successfully been through law school can manage to pass. Right. right. Given that we let you take it multiple times, it'd be different, of course, if you said you can only take it once. Right. Because then you would wonder, well, maybe they just had a bad day. Right. Yeah. But that isn't true. They keep there are people who keep taking it and keep failing it. But, but and you I can do that, it. You can look at it another way, too. You could say, what if the standards for practicing in in Georgia or some other state where you had to have a, a B minus average in law school? Uh-huh. And if you have that, you get through. And there's also this exam. And there are, uh, but the exam you don't necessarily have to pass to practice law, but you you have to take for some reason. I don't know. It may well be that there are people who can get through law school who could not pass that exam. And then yep. you'd have the same question that you're just asking. It would just be reversed and would be wondering about the proxy the other way, right? Oh, sure. I mean, it's... Uh, <laughs> you see, my, so it's... Yeah, go ahead. Uh, my point is, it, it not not that... I wasn't trying to say it was a perfect system. I'm trying to say what we observe is that... W- when you ask, is it worth having this additional gateway? Yeah. Yeah. Um, it, it is in one thing that's good to notice is that it is in fact functioning as a gateway, right? It, there are people who manage to not get across it. Right. And, and to the degree that we think that the, the, the test uses substantively something that relates to the professional activities in which they'd be engaged. I, I, I have trouble seeing how that's absolutely for sure a bad thing that we're keeping them away from the practice of law right. I, uh, as lawyers, as, as, you know, lawyers representing other folk in court. Everything you just said would be true if the bar exam consisted of a single multiple choice question, though. <laughs> right. Uh, fair point. No, that's a great point. So so it, it can function as a gateway and still be, for example, way too costly to administer. Um way too costly in all kinds of other ways yeah i don't doubt that for a second and so are um, you again christian were, were you in favor of the uniform bar exam is this your i th- or, or? i i think I, you know again i, I haven't delved i've read uh chimarinsky's washington is washington post wasn't it or no la times it was yeah. la times yeah. yeah um i mean you might not be in favor of any bar exam i i'm really on the, i really don't know i'm really on the fence about this i i, I don't have a fully formed view because I'm, I'm not sure what we want and and my wants for the legal profession are kind of i don't know if they're idiosyncratic but but they may be broader than just i certainly am in favor of gating out people who would be incompetent where that incompetence would not be detected by consumers you know your typical kind of market failure story sure. and and uh and this is a, you know like with like auto repair it's easy for someone with technical knowledge to take advantage of someone who right. doesn't have it and right. it's easy to kind of feign competence when you don't have it so I wonder, though, if uh, the entrance requirements in law school are enough, are enough to take care and, of that. And, and to the extent that we think that we observe kind of social problems with competence in lawyers, 
I think it might be easier to do something about that by doing something specific in law schools, which have, which can, you know, add new courses of study, right. which can test in, in more nuanced ways. Um, now, that set of concerns, I mean, to me, there are actually yeah. two separate harms going on and why I do favor a uniform bar exam and actually can still remain agnostic on whether there should be any bar exam at all. Um, because there are two t- different types of harms. And the harms about the national nature of the labor market, uh, preventing people from moving to a new state if they want to because they would have to take a bar exam and they don't want to do that and blah, blah, blah. Right. Like, those arguments from a competition perspective are are highly persuasive to me Uh, i think it's bad that there is this exam that keeps people stuck in a state they no longer want to live in because you're not as concerned about incompetency in terms of specific mastery of state level materials which are right i mean that's one kind of incompetency is i may know about law in in, in broadly capital l right but i know nothing about like new york anti-competition law or 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 new york the new york will drafting or whatever so right so i i think um, uh, you still have the problem of can consumers spot the f- the 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 below grade service right right um, there's still that problem for a newly arrived lawyer from North Dakota who hasn't yet gotten up to speed on New York will drafting yeah see rather than Virginia we should have been picking on North Dakota the whole yeah, time because they don't listen to the show so anyway the show, exactly. right they're not even enough <laughs> um, no but uh, you know so you you'd still have that issue but but I feel like uh, it's compounded by the problem of why are we distorting people's choices about where to live with this crazy bar exam? The costs stuff. are obvious. The oh, costs that's right. are yeah, obvious. Yeah. yeah, so you're not – so if it is a test of minimum competence or to keep out these uh, potentially bad agents, um, then that, that sounds like something much less specific to the local jurisdiction, right? That sounds like a test of larger general competency and why something like the uniform bar exam might make sense. And in fact, I mean, we've already moved that way in a number of regards with the uh, multi-state professional responsibility exam. Right. Um, almost every state adopts that despite the fact that you have your own local ethics rules that are going to govern your own conduct. And half of the – in many jurisdictions, half the bar exam is this multi-state bar exam multiple choice component. Which um, all but one state uses, correct? Right. Yes, absolutely. So, um, so if and we're it's dealing Louisiana with minimal- for anyone who's curious. Yeah. So you're right. I, I think tearing down that last wall of the state-specific essays, and and maybe part of this is I think, and I imagine when you speak to practitioners, um, uh, old school practitioners, maybe uh, they might say, "Well, we want you to learn our jurisdiction's law," right? And I think there's this. I, I don't want to use uh, like a, a naivete almost that. The idea that we sit down as lawyers when we graduate law school and we hang a shingle and we're expected to know everything from wills and trusts to tax law to writing articles of incorporation. And those are all things that are in our head that every lawyer ought to know and yeah. ought to be able to do. Right? It's something that's – I mean it sounds almost very 19th century. right? We have deep specialization now in law. We very rarely are the generalists we might uh, we might hold ourselves out to be. Um, in almost all areas of the law, we are constantly referring clients to experts or to people who know more about that area than we do in hope that there will be some reciprocity. And when a client comes into their door, they're going to send them our way because we're the ones who are experts in our own area. Right. Um, so yeah, it is. if we're testing minimal competency – 
it would strike me that local jurisdictions or knowledge of the local jurisdiction's law is less important because you are going to figure it out when you get there anyway and you have the competence to be able to do it. Yeah, I think there are two things. Like one is that, uh, you know, what competence means for a lawyer is that you are competent at learning what you need to learn to do a case and knowing when to farm stuff out, right? Yeah. So it's kind of like a general practitioner in medicine, right? You need to be competent at being able to, you know, observe something, know what's relevant in your observations of the patient, and then know where to go to find things. You know, you have a structure within which to to know how to how to find out what the latest research is on something in order to know something. But you also have to have a competency to know to whom to ask when there's something presents, right? Right. And, right. and so it's interesting what you said, because my, my inclination was, was kind of was the opposite, but I think yours is equally true. And that is what makes for the minimally competent lawyer is someone who, A, is trained to learn more law, right? They, they right. know how to learn what they need to learn to do the case. Uh, I think that's even true of the expert. But but secondly, it's someone who knows when things are outside of their expertise and maybe who has developed a deep expertise in a narrow field, right? Uh, that, right. And, but even the, 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 deep, the deeply knowledgeable expert still is learning what they need to learn for a particular case, right? That's part of what expertise is, right? Is knowing the un- knowing some of the unknowns, right? No- knowing what some of the unknowns are so that in the next case, you know how to make the arguments. Um, it's well, not right. like I mean, you've got a phone book of laws that you've memorized, right? No, and, and you know, that, I mean, that's malpractice to do it otherwise, right? If, you, if, if you're aware generally of the pleading standards under 12b-6, right, and you're generally aware of, or, or under Rule 8, and you're generally aware of Twombly and Iqbal and those kinds of things, you're still going to go look in your circuit to figure out what the the latest cases have been saying about it before you file, because... It would be malpractice not to. You can't just rest on your laurels and expect that the the law as you last recalled it is still good law because the nature of it is is that it's constantly changing. Yeah, and if if someone, I mean, that's to me, that's the kind of competence that you want to measure. And it's not like does the person know for a fact if there are three signatures on the back of the check who's who gets the money, which is one right. of those things I was surprised to have to learn for the bar exam. <laughs> <laughs> right, which is this law of, of of check cashing, as far as I can tell. It, it, <laughs> That's that was exactly how I learned it because it otherwise made no sense. The holder in due course rule, yeah, and exactly. Whatever other kinds of sentences I've remembered. At yeah. One point. <laughs> um. So the a, there is a I do think there's a minimal competence part of that picture that you just described. Um. I think there is a the current system has a a dist- distorts um a lot of other choices people make that that don't seem like worthwhile distortions that that doesn't seem like social resources well spent and i do think that there's a piece of this missing that that could help consumers um, in a sort of analogy to a food label way that there would be some information that we could you know if there were an analogous like the consumer financial protection bureau if there were a legal services protection bureau that could come up with a sort of a food nutrition label approach to what <laughs> lawyers ought to be required yeah, to have just, associated uh, here's with where, all right, we're gonna have to we're gonna have to end the show because okay. because we've we, you know that we we've kept uh, derek too long and we'll just have to and i don't want to say i want to save him for um the the derek muller episode too okay. in the future <laughs> but um uh but what what you say though is so, it, it just strikes me that our our ability to predict uh our ability to signal how good someone is is as uncertain as our as our ability to say what law is generally right yeah. it's that that yeah. just general uncertainty about like what it means to practice law and that does not that can be true 
and yet there can still be a pragmatically acceptable approach that gives some metrics, right? Because mm-hmm. that too much self-protecting harm inflicted on others BS can happen in a universe where you just stop with the sentence you just uttered and decide yeah, not I, to do anything else. I agree. Too much bad can be flung on other people in that world yeah. for me. So I would want to keep saying, but can we pragmatically come up with the, you know, the lawyer fiber content label? Maybe get rid of all the lawyers. <laughs> are you, are you proposing, Joe, to launch the Yelp for lawyers? Is that, I was that wondering that too. Actually. No, no, no. <laughs> No, I'm not. <laughs> Yelp only usable by elites is what Joe is thinking. Yeah. This is and, l- and, and, and Christian, when he hears me do things like this, just says, swipe left, swipe left. <laughs> he doesn't even get the joke. So I don't, I don't get the joke. What, what are you even talking about? <laughs> I'm, I'm, let's move on. Let's, let's right, conclude. So, all right, we got, yeah, we got we to gotta let you go because it's like – I think it's – let's see. It's, I'm trying to do the math. It's, it's about 3 – 6 a.m. in New York right now. It's 3.30 in the morning in California right now where Derek is, isn't it? Is, uh, aren't you so, guys about yeah, nine hours and 40 minutes behind? I forget I what it so. is. I, yeah. yeah, I'm just going to go pop down to Perth shortly after this. Yeah, well, thank you so much for uh, having me. You know, I've listened to you almost from the beginning, I think, and most of your episodes. And you, you have so many great folks like Christina Mulligan and Nathan Chapman and Lori Ring hand but my area's election law so i love i love oh, hearing yeah. Lori's talk and um yeah i just really appreciate all the all the work you've done and look forward to listening to many more episodes to come thank you so much and, and we we do you know derek you are one of our ideal listeners right i mean this is the the person we're trying to reach you you know who just loves listening and thinking and i'm sure you know i'm sure what it's like because i know that it, this is what it would be like for me to listen to the show uh, other <laughs> other than other than just torture it would be totally torture for me to listen i, I do i am a listener too i'm not only a yeah. Uh, producer i'm also a, a listener but uh right. <laughs> um that, that i'd want to talk back to it all the time i was like no 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 you're not thinking of blah 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 is, is that what it's like to listen to the show if you're not me uh, at times yeah when i'm yeah. driving in my car i break the fourth wall and i'm just <laughs> shouting at you saying, <laughs> yes case books should all be free right? yes there like, we go now it's, we got to return to this one yeah <laughs> yeah Derek's the best i know I know. It's spoken the line smoke spoken right into the Mueller mic. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Derek. Until next time, man. Thank you so All right, much. Thank you. Take, Take care. care. All right. Bye bye.